everyone, and welcome to this episode of Behind the Sermon, a time when pastors sit down and talk about all things preaching and practical ministry. My name is Todd Lovell, and I am joined at the table today by Pastor Andrew C. Thompson. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Todd. How's it going? It's going well. On this episode of Behind the Sermon, we're going to talk a little bit about our upcoming sermon. We'll also recap our town hall just a little bit, and we'll get into a um, message from our mailbag. I kind of stuttered on the message from our mailbag. So come along with us as we go Behind the Sermon. So we got a busy week this week, Andrew. Uh, feel, I feel like they're all busy weeks, and they're probably just going to get busier and busier the yeah. closer we get to Advent, right? Um, but we have a, a special event I just want to plug really quick before we get too far into our podcast uh, called Friendsgiving. We're having a Friendsgiving meal uh, coming up this Sunday, November 11th, from 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m. in the Family Life Center. Now, you might be asking, what is Friendsgiving, Andrew? Todd, what is Friendsgiving? That's a very good question. I'm actually surprised you asked that. Friendsgiving is an opportunity for all of us here at First Church to come together and to fellowship and have a a Thanksgiving-themed meal. So we're going to have some turkey, some rolls, and all side dishes that uh, our people want to bring. But also to bring a friend, and this is very important, bring a friend that is not yet connected to First Church. Now, I know we all have those people that we think we think of in the back of our minds and we say, man, I really wish I had something that I could invite him or her to. Well, friends, let me tell you, this is the event that you have been waiting for. So this is a perfect opportunity to invite all of those friends who are not yet a part of First Church to come and to hang out, enjoy some fellowship and some food for our Friendsgiving meal. We're going to be um, giving thanks for our fellowship together uh, and for the food that we share and for all of our friends that we'll be bringing together for Friendsgiving. Again, that's this Sunday, November 11th from 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock. Bring a friend and bring your favorite holiday side dish. It's going to be awesome. Um, Sounds like fun. Yeah, I can't wait. I I kind of... uh, I kind of came to this realization not too long ago, Andrew, that was like, why do we wait till Thanksgiving to actually eat all the awesome food that you eat at Thanksgiving. Yeah. There's nothing that says you can't have like turkey and dressing all months of the year. I know. Well, except I would nap all year if that happened. I know, but that's the whole point. Isn't that awesome? You just nap all year. And so it's kind of like when I only drink ginger ale on a plane. I don't know why I don't... I love ginger ale. I don't know why I drink it more often. (laughs) I usually only do it on a plane. I love turkey and dressing. I don't know why I don't eat it more often, but for some reason I always wait till one day towards the end of November. So this will be an opportunity for us to uh, maybe enjoy a little bit of that food beforehand, as well as some some fun and some fellowship. Um, I'm excited today, Andrew, because not only do we have a lot of stuff happening this week, but we also have a message, a message in our mailbag. So I'm going to have Josh Bland, our producer, let the sweet waters of emails flow. Flip the switch, my friend. It's time for the mailbag. Remember that here at First Church, you can send your emails uh, with questions about preaching or practical ministry to first, no, to, uh, let me get it, to podcast at firstchurchspringdale.org. That's podcast 
at firstchurchspringdale.org. Feel free to ask us anything about preaching or practical ministry, and we will say the first thing that comes to our minds, which, Andrew, we all know, is always pure gold. That's right. So we have a message this week from none other than yours truly, Barnabas Strubing, the geyser of Springdale. Um, and this is a question that I think I think is kind of a follow-up to All Saints Day, which is the, the holy day that we just had on Sunday. It is, I think. Yeah. All right. So yeah. go ahead and share that with us, Andrew. Yeah, so this comes to us from Wade Strubing. Wade, our faithful uh, mailbag questioner. Thank you, Wade, for sending us uh, so many wonderful questions, and sometimes so seasonally appropriate, like this year. So here, here is the question. Um, he, uh, he he sent this on the 5th, which was the day after All Saints Sunday on, on Monday of this week. Um, and he asks the question, to what extent do Methodists recognize the Catholic saints? It's a great question. That's a good question. That is a multi-layered question. It is. So we got to kind of talk about what a saint is. Right. And how the Catholic Church views the saints and then how we might uh, agree or disagree with some of that. That's so, right. Yeah. That's right. So the word, the word saint in English is drawn from the word uh, in, in Latin for holy. Mm-hmm. And so a saint, uh, the word in Latin is sanctus, it just means a, a holy one or a holy person. Um, and in the New Testament, uh, that's not just reserved for the, the very special people that we think of like St. Mary or St. Peter yeah. or St. John. Who have these miracles or interesting stories attached to them. Yeah. yeah. It, but instead, it just means a believer. Yeah. It means a... Greet all the saints is, is a common refrain in Paul's letters, right? That, greet all the right. saints in whatever city he's writing to. Yeah. yeah. And he's saying, greet all the holy ones, greet the believers, greet the ones who are holy because they have been made holy in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and so when we talk about the saints like we do on All Saints Sunday, mm-hmm. we're not just talking about people who are of a, a special elevated holiness. We're talking about... Christian believers. Right. So the the saints in the church triumphant are those who have gone on to be with Jesus in glory, who have passed through this mortal coil. But then the, there are the saints who are in the church militant here on earth, and that's that's you and me, Todd. That's Wade. That's that's everyone who's a believer in the church. Right. Now, when you talk about Catholic saints, that's something a little different, isn't it? Uh huh. It can be. Yep. And because the, the in the Catholic Church there is. A, a process uh, uh, by which people are beatified, by which people are proclaimed to the status of of sainthood. And I'm not a Catholic, and I never have been, so I'm, I may be speaking a little out of school here, Todd, mm-hmm. but my understanding of that is that the reason that the church would, would beatify certain individuals after their death is because of the, the confidence that the church has that those people are without sin and therefore stand in the presence of God. Right, and I think a lot of that is pulled from... We don't usually think about this in the terms of Catholic theology, but Catholic theology, much like Wesleyan theology, has a very developed and robust sense of holiness yes. and sanctification. Yeah. And so there are key factors that, that, that tend to be disregarded in the Protestant Church, um, uh, key factors in Catholic theology, which actually are there not necessarily because they're made explicit in Scripture, but because they're, they're theological outworkings of this concept of holiness in the Catholic Church. For example, this idea of sainthood, that those are people that have approached holiness in their, in their mortal life mm-hmm. to such a point that 
the church has confidence of their holiness in the afterlife. Yeah. Um, this is also where the, the doctrine of purgatory comes from. Uh, the whole idea of purgatory is not really a, a place of, of punishment. It's a place of purging, which is where that word comes from, that we can pursue holiness in this life, um, and yet after we die, all of, the, all of the sinfulness in our life that we have been yet, uh, yet to be purged of in, in our mortal life has to be purged of us in this in-between phase before we can enter into the complete holiness of the presence of God. Yeah. And so that's where, you know, in purgatory, that doctrine gets kind of corrupted and, and misused throughout the high Middle Ages. But, um, but that's ultimately where that doc- doctrine comes from, is this that as well as the idea, the theology behind the cult of saints, is actually really tied to a, a theology of holiness that rests within Catholic theology, which is really interesting, I think. Yeah, and I like what you bring up about purgatory because oftentimes... Uh, Protestants, who we're not really familiar with that doctrine, we certainly don't hold to it, um, will see, um, you know, sometimes in the the stereotype or the caricature that we'll use of, of doctrines like that that we're unfamiliar with, is it always trends towards the negative. So right, right. people will think of purgatory as a place of suffering or a place where you are denied access to God. And as you say, Todd, it's not meant to be a negative thing at all. It's a positive thing. Right. Uh, there's a passage in Hebrews chapter 12 that talks about that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Mm-hmm. And the idea there is that, that sin is not permitted in the presence of God because God is pure goodness. Mm-hmm. God is pure love. And so how in the world could sin be allowed there? And so w- one has to be cleansed of that sin. One has to be made holy, it, fully right. and completely. And right. without that holiness, no one, no one shall see the Lord. And so through a process of purgation or through cleansing, mm-hmm. one, the Catholic idea is that one could be readied, be made ready to enter fully into the holiness of God. Right. And so with saints, the idea is they just, the, the Catholic Church is saying, we're sure these people are not in purgatory. Right. We're sure that these people are in heaven. That they, they, they approach such the a level of holiness in this life that upon their death, they just walk right into the presence of, of right. God. Right. Yeah. That's not to say that the Methodist Church has uh, a lot of patience for that. <laughs> um, uh, we can actually turn yeah. to our own doctrine, which is the Articles of Religion. Uh, it's one, one part of our church's um, official doctrine, and this, go- this dates all the way back to the mid-1500s. Mm-hmm. So this is part of our doctrine that we inherit from the Reformation-era Church of England, and this is... This is fundamental. I mean, this is at the highest level of belief. So this is, this is uh, if you were to say, do, what do the Methodists believe about uh, the saints or about purgatory? You can actually go to that yep. and find it. And it's in Article 14 of the Articles of Religion, and the title is Of Purgatory. And I'm going to read it to you here. It says, all right. Let's read it, and then let's explain it. Okay. I was, so, was going to wonder, I kind of wondered if you were going to put any qualifiers yeah, at the beginning of yeah. this, because just yeah. listen, folks. Yeah. Th- this is tough language. If you have a Catholic cousin, you know, yeah. just let me, uh, just, just don't turn off the podcast yeah. when you hear this. Okay. Article 14 of Purgatory. The Romish doctrine, anytime you hear Romish, this is not <laughs> going to be positive. Okay. The Romish doctrine concerning purgatory, pardon, worshiping, and adoration as well as of images as of relics, and also invocation of saints, is a fond thing, vainly invented, and grounded upon no warrant of Scripture, but repugnant to the Word of God. All right. 
that's about as critical as you can get. That sounds like something written years after the Reformation. And that's exactly <laughs> when it was written. So, yeah. I mean, just think about that, folks. I mean, what, what the Reformation meant in the Christian world at the time, and then this, these are doctrines that are, or, or articles that are written. Right. Not, not long after. So. The, the Articles of Religion go back to the 1540s. They were originally the 42 Articles of Religion. Uh, they went through a process of evolution until what's called the Elizabethan Settlement of the Church, and they were uh, eventually whittled down to 39 Articles. The, the, the final uh, version of these in the Church of England was settled 1560, 1563, somewhere around there. I'd have to check... Check on that, but it was it was during that period of time, relatively early on in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. That's why it's called the Elizabethan Settlement. Um, she took the throne in 1558. When the Methodists inherited these, they were filtered through the editorial pen of John Wesley himself, and this happened in 15, sorry, 1783-84, when the Revolutionary War was winding down. And the Methodists in America, it was clear that they were going to have to form their own church because they had been a parachurch movement within the Church of England, and the head of the Church of England is the King of England, and you yeah. can't very easily remain a part of... Persona non grata. Yeah, you can't, time, yeah. You can't yeah. keep doing that when you've just fought a war to remove yourself from the King of England's authority. So right. John Wesley prepares certain documents for the American Methodists, and he sends them over, and at the Christmas Conference of 1784, they're agreed to... And there's a version of the 39 articles. But Wesley whittled them down to 24 articles, and the Americans added one extra one. So we now have 25 articles of religion, and this one made the list. Okay. Mm. Now, um, what, what's going on when this article is originally written is that, the, is that the church in England is trying to deal with what it believes to be abuses and superstitions of the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. So they're... they're there could be a version of the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory and the Roman Catholic doctrine of sainthood that Protestants might find interesting. Uh, I'm not saying that they would want to fully accept it, mm -hmm. but they probably would not describe it with some of the language that you see in this article. Right. Okay? I'm, I'm trying to interpret this charitably. Um, but trying to interpret Roman Catholic doctrines charitably was not on the mind of Protestants in the 1550s and 60s. Sure, yeah. And what they're, what they're looking at is what they consider to be just pure idolatry. Yep, yep. Okay? So the relics of saints, meaning the bones of people from centuries past mm -hmm. that maybe not even like saints like Peter and John, but maybe just medieval monks, okay? Yeah. And, and there might this might be Saint, I don't know, Cuthbert or somebody, and, and they might have his finger bone or his leg bone in a box. Or something a, they died on. Or something they died or on. Or, 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 or maybe a yeah. garment that they wore. Right. And they might parade that out at certain times of the year, and that was seen as having magical, supernatural properties, and there would be claims about certain miracles that would have been done by yep. people who had touched it or come into contact with it, and people would bow down to it and even almost get to the point of worshiping it. Right. All yeah. right. So, so when, when this talks about um, images of relics and invocation of the saints, mm -hmm. that's what it's getting to. Yep. Why would you pray to a long-dead holy man or woman as opposed to just praying to Jesus? Sure. 
Um, and so that's why when you look in our official church teaching, this is a very, very negative view. It's, it's really a commentary on the, the Reformation-era church's view of medieval Catholicism. Right. And I do think, uh, though there's not explicit scriptural warrant, I do think there are there are some ways that I, I'm not one of those Protestants that's ready to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to the Catholic Church. After all, these are traditions where our scriptures come from at all. So if we're going to have a high view of scripture, you have to have some idea of a sub-authority of the Catholic Church, yeah. being that that's where we have our scriptures from anyway. Um, but like I said, I think a lot of that is not necessarily... Uh, come up with or practiced or articulated because they find it in Scripture, but rather it's a logical, in their minds, it's a logical outworking of the pursuit of holiness that is outlined in Scripture. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, you could think of something as the as the the invocation of the saints or, or asking saints, petitioning saints that have gone before us uh, in death to pray for us. And why would we, why would we do that? Um, and I think a Catholic response to that would say, well, if you would go to your Aunt Mary and mm-hmm. ask her to pray for you, why would you not go to St. Paul, yeah. who is also alive in Christ, mm-hmm. if we believe that, and is in that great cloud of witnesses looking down upon us, why would you not go to him and ask you or ask him to pray for you? Yeah. I mean, not we believe as Protestants that, yes, you can go before the throne of Jesus, but that doesn't prevent us from asking other believers to pray for us. Right. Right. In fact, there's great power, and Paul even tells us that there's healing that comes through that. Yeah. Right. I, I have prayed for you before. You've prayed for me. We've laid Absol- hands on one another. Absolutely. And prayed yeah. for one another before. And and uh, and I, that's called intercessory prayer. Right. Uh, and we consider it... I mean, any any Christian believer does that. Right. And so I think that that's... Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying at all that I, I practice that or or... Uh, fully believe that. I, I'm simply saying that those things that were chalked up as superstition actually do have, in my opinion, a theological grounding yeah. to them. The question um, here, and and uh, we do, listeners, believe it or not, we do do a little prep work before this podcast from time to time. Especially today, yeah. <laughs> and we, we were talking about this question. Wade, Wade Strubing has a wonderful knack of asking things that really are, are incisive and insightful questions. And and we were talking about how to navigate this, and we were reading this article from the Articles of Religion before the podcast earlier today, and you get to the word invocation mm. in this article, which the which our doctrine speaks sharply against, and the and and you realize that the entire article, Article fourteen, hinges on that word invocation. Mm. What does the word invocation mean? Well, the word invocation literally means to to call on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Uh, uh, invo- in, <clears throat> comes from vocare, which means voice. Invocation means to to call on, or to 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 call on the help of, mm-hmm. or to or to um, e- you might even say to pray to. All right. So for me, the question is, how do you interpret invocation? Are you are you calling on? Are you praying to a saint mm. rather than to God? Well, that sounds kind of like idolatry. Yep. Are you calling on the saint to help you directly? Right. Well, that kind of sounds like idolatry. Sure. Like, save me, St. Peter or St. Right. Mary, uh, you know, or, or I pray to you, St. John or, or St. Paul. Or are you rather simply asking that person to pray for you in the way that you might ask your your brother to pray for you or your wife to pray for you? Right. That, to me, does not sound idolatrous. That sounds like something 
else entirely. It does, yeah. Now, I'm not ready to formulate a doctrine around it, and right. I'm not going to preach it from the pulpit. I'm just saying I'm not going to condemn uh, another Christian for choosing to do that. Sure. And one of the things, uh, Wade, that I think, even if you don't invoke uh, the saints in prayer, uh, one of the things that I do think that the Methodist Christians need not disregard whole, wholesale is just the life, the lives of the saints throughout the generations, um, including the ones in Scripture, obviously, but there have been uh, Christians throughout the ages that have lived earthly lives just as we as we are and have dealt with things that we deal with and are yeah. still dealing with and have overcome them through the power um, of Jesus Christ in the in the presence of the Holy Spirit that we can learn from that their virtue uh, just like the the saints that sit in our pews every single week we can learn from their lives we can also learn from the lives of the saints of old and um, I find a great comfort in that uh, in some ways, in some ways, the saints within the scriptures can sometimes seem otherworldly, even though that even though I know that they also lived in a time and place. Mm-hmm. But when you read saints uh, like Jerome, uh, Macrina, like a lot of these saints, Aquinas, a lot of these people throughout history, you can you can begin to see like, oh, that life. That life seems a lot like mine. Yeah. In the same way that if you know somebody in the congregation um, that is perhaps older than you, 20, 30, 40 years older than you, and yet they've gone through similar things that you're dealing with, you go to them and sure. you ask for advice and you say, how did you deal with this? And, and how did God deliver you from these things when you were my age? Yeah. Um, and there's some wisdom and some encouragement that can come from that too, and some power, some freedom that I think is of Christ. It's not them freeing you from those sins but their witness to the presence of Christ in their life during that time can lead to freedom in your own life during that time. Absolutely. That's, you know, the um, one of John Wesley's favorite works of uh, from what's called the Holy Living Tradition was Thomas Akempis' work, The Imitation of Christ, mm-hmm. you know, and it, that the idea that what the what the, um, the great Christian figures of the past have done is they have so imitated Christ that they provide a window for us into Christian yes. living. When I used to teach church history in the seminary, I would I would say before uh, at the beginning of every semester, before any class in the first day, I would say, "Why do we study church history? Why aren't we just reading the Bible? Why would we read Christian history at all? Why would we read Christian historical theology?" and and the answer that I would give is, and this is the reason why I went to pursue that at the graduate level, is because you know when I come across a figure like a John Wesley or a Susanna Wesley, for that matter, or you might say a, a Saint Thomas of, or, or Saint Francis of Assisi, mm-hmm. you know, or or a Saint Augustine. That that you are you are studying people's lives that provide you a window into the gospel. Right. You know, they help to become the corrective lenses in your eyeglass frames that help you see Jesus better. Yeah, so, absolutely. Don't invoke them in the sense of praying to them. Don't sure. don't do that. Don't ask them to help you directly. Uh, invoke Jesus. I mean, yeah. I yeah. mean, the Bible says in, in in Hebrews it says that Jesus is the great High Priest. That's right. Uh, that has entered into the Holy of Holies on our behalf, and that now the way is open uh, to the throne of grace. We can boldly approach the throne of grace right. because of Jesus. But but study the lives of the saints, yeah, and, and and read about their witness, read their writings if they left writings behind, because in that process you might gain a window into the life that Jesus calls you to live. 
I think that's a good word and a way to hope, hope that's helpful. Um, we'll kind of move on from that, I guess. Uh, I, again, if you have any uh, comments or questions about preaching or practical ministry, we want to encourage you to send in an email to podcast at firstchurchspringdale.org. We would love to uh, have another topic to talk about. So go ahead and send those our way. We'd love to see them. Um, we did have our scheduled town hall, the first of two, this past Sunday evening. Uh, I thought that went really well. Very well attended. It, it was. Uh, had it, had over it 130 our, people. Over 130 people had it in our new chapel. Um, and I think we kind of, I think it went how we thought it would go. And we said everything I think we were wanting to say and needed to say as far as information about upcoming stuff in yeah. February. Yeah. I was talking to my wife uh, when I got home that night and, and I... You know, I just said that to her. I said, I, I didn't walk away thinking that there was anything that I should have said that I didn't. I think that's a God thing. Yeah. Because for me, I always walk away from things <laughs> like that going, man, I wish I would have said blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, but I felt I felt a real peace about it afterwards, which mm-hmm. I think shows a little bit of uh, the response of God to our prayers yeah. <laughs> for that, hopefully. So, yeah. So if you are if, if, if you don't know quite know what we're talking about, the town halls are intended to provide information about the specially called General Conference that's upcoming in February of 2019 for the United Methodist Church, uh, and that's a general conference that will discuss the uh, the plans that have been formulated by the Commission on a Way Forward over the past two years, uh, dealing with the Church's understanding of human sexuality, uh, specifically as that relates to our teaching on marriage and on qualifications for ordination. Uh, these are obviously... Um, sensitive topics. Mm -hmm. They're topics that really hit home with people that are people feel passionately about oftentimes, and topics that we want to um, deal with very sensitively and compassionately within the church. Um, I want to thank everybody who did come to that town hall last Sunday evening. And we also want to remind people, of course, that there's another town hall. Uh Uh-huh. It's, if you went to the first one, you're welcome to come to the second one, but you're not going to get any new information. Right. Um, we just wanted to provide uh, a couple of different opportunities for people that might have a hard time making it to one or the other. So the one that's going to be upcoming is a week from today. It'll be on Wednesday, November the 14th, and that will begin at 5.30 p.m., scheduled to go to 7.30. Uh, again, that will be in the chapel, and we look forward to seeing folks there. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about our upcoming sermon. We are coming up uh, on our third week of our Overflow Stewardship se- uh, Series. So, uh, Andrew, talk to us a little bit about what you're hoping to to get across this week. Yeah, I, I'm having fun with this, Todd. I, sometimes you, you get a little nervous about preaching about stewardship and talking about things like giving and tithing in the church. Uh, but but I've, I've actually been having a lot of fun with this series. I think it takes some of the pressure off to do it in more than two weeks. Yes. Because you can actually kind of lay some groundwork before you kind of get into the, the nitty-gritty of what we're doing. And so I think that's helpful. I hadn't thought about that, but that may be exactly why um, I think it's been going well, because mm-hmm. I haven't felt the need to kind of cram everything in there. Right. And I've kind of tried to draw out the way that we talk about stewardship. So I did take up the issue of tithing in week one and about that prophetic call from Malachi to yeah. bring the full tithe into the storehouse and the way that God sets that up like a dare 
It's kind of like God's I dare you moment. Yeah. Um, and uh, see, see if I won't open up the windows of heaven, God says, and pour out blessings upon you until there is no more need. Yeah. That's the way that the Lord says that through Malachi. Well, we jumped forward into the first letter of John um, in this past Sunday, and we talked about what it means to abide in God's love. And the way that John puts that is he says, if you see, if you have worldly possessions, and if you see your brother in need, and yet you refuse to give to him, then how can you abide in the love of God? Right. And the, the inverse of that, of course, is that if you do abide in the love of God, then you will have the kind of character that will cause you to give hmm. to those who are in need. Sure, yeah. And that means, it has, says something, I think, Todd, about the motivation for our giving that we're meant right. to have, that right. if we will abide in the love of God, then our motivation will be right. We won't be giving out of fear. We won't be giving out of a desire for reward. We won't even be giving out of a bare sense of duty, and yeah. duty's important. But instead, we'll be giving because we are loving with the right. love of Jesus Christ. I love that, too. And I love, I love the way you kind of walked us through those steps. And in some ways, I think there's, there's a progression there, Right. Because um, I can see in my own life, especially in my relationship uh, with God, but even so in my relationship with others, that we, I, I see that same progression. Yeah. Right? And so I do think uh, it's important for, for... I think it's important for folks to understand that, like, just... Cause I, I'm a bit of a perfectionist a, a little bit. I'm very very much an idealist, too, by nature. And so I'm one of those people that's like, if I can't do it for love, I'm not going to do it at all. Yeah. And it's like, well... Duty's not the worst one. No. If you need to do it like you feel dutiful to do it, do it, because that's the only way that you actually get to the love. Yeah. Right? And, like, you might have to kind of work your way through that progression to get there. And so but I thought that was really a good way to frame Thanks. that this past week. Yeah. I don't do everything out of love either. Don't get me wrong. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the, the examples that I used, I used on purpose. Like, why do you stop at stop signs? Yeah, yeah. Well... Is it because you love the laws of your city? <laughs> no. It's because you fear getting pulled over and getting the ticket. Right. That's not always a bad thing. No. You yeah, know, and yeah. why, the other one, paying your taxes. Why do you pay your taxes? Is it because of the love of the federal government? Yeah. Not really. <laughs> do you have a sense of duty that if, if I don't do this and if millions of other people don't do this, then we don't have a society? Well, yeah, that's yeah. not a bad thing at all. Right. But if you want to talk about giving to God or giving to the church or giving to your brother or sister in need, then, wow, you know, maybe it's possible to think about that in a way that it does become a a thing that is motivated by the love that comes from Jesus. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because I think it's actually good that we set that up this past Sunday, because this is one of the the critiques that Jesus is, is leveling against the religious leaders this yes, week, Yes, it right? is. Yes, yeah. it is. So let's go ahead and go there. Okay, so we're getting into Matthew chapter 23 uh, this week, uh, and this is a passage that is called The Woes, okay, yeah. The Woes. And this is uh, a series of statements that Jesus makes where he talks about, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Mm. And then there's a formula to this, okay? So it's, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you do X when you should do Y. Okay. All right? So that you got to break this down a little bit. What are scribes and Pharisees, first of all? Well, they're not the same category of people. There is some overlap. You mm -hmm. have some scribes that are also Pharisees, but, but, but they're also two different classes of people. So a scribe is like a lawyer, 
Mm-hmm. A scribe is someone who is professionally trained uh, in the technicalities of the law and knows how to apply those to cases. Okay. Okay. Um, and um, and these are people who would have had uh, a, a, a an employee as being these kind of scribal professionals. Okay. okay. Pharisees are not necessarily professionally trained as scholars in the same way that the scribes are, but but they are the the ones who have devoted them, themselves to a higher level of religious practice and become kind of like the forerunners of the rabbis, okay? And in mm. Second Temple, when Second Temple Judaism ends, when the temple's destroyed in the year 70, and... Um, you end up with a Judaism that finds its home in the life of the synagogue and the teaching of the Torah, mm-hmm. then you the Pharisees become kind of the leaders of that, and they become eventually what would just be the leaders of rabbinic Judaism, the rabbis. Okay. okay? And so they're the ones who, they may not be professionals, but they're the ones who are trying to, in their own lives, make sure that they're applying the, the law of Moses with exactitude in, you know, and, and, and urging others to do the same. Hmm. Okay. Part of what Jesus is doing is he's trying to get them to avoid missing the forest for the trees. And in the woes, you get a lot of that. Okay. You get a lot of woe to you, you know, uh, some version of woe to you because you're seeing the individual trees and getting your microscope out and examining them, uh, but you are, you are missing the, the larger forest. And, and some of the ways that we might think about that uh, when we're reading this from Matthew 23 is that what they're seeing is the letter of the law and what they're missing is the sure. spirit. Yeah, the letter and the spirit. Yeah. Or, or what they're seeing is the technicalities of the law and what they're missing is the moral intent behind it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll read a couple of these to you. This is in, uh, let's see, let me back up a little bit. Um, this is uh, verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by the oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that has made the gold sacred? And you say, whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gift on that altar is bound by the oath. How blind you are, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? What, what Jesus is referring to there is that the, the Pharisees are interpreting points of the Old Testament law and talking about what you should swear on or what your oath should be on. And Jesus is saying, you're missing the point of that. Right. It's not really about the gold and the sanctuary and the altar, et cetera. It's about the meaning behind those words. Right. You go down a little bit further. I'd start in verse 13. You go down to verse 23, and this is what I'm actually going to be using for the sermon this week. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Gross. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So what are we getting at here? Well, what we're getting at here 
is that scribes and Pharisees took tithing uh, regulations so exactly that they would tithe the herbs in their gardens, in their Mm -hmm. backyard gardens, just like you might grow mint and dill and cumin. They did too. And I, I suppose what that means is, is that they would take the leaves that they got from their herbs and they would take a tenth of them and probably sell them and give the money to the temple or what have you. Um, now, the first thing to note is Jesus is not saying tithing is bad. Right. He's saying you should have done that, but you also should have paid attention to larger issues like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Right. The, t- the tithe is simply a practice to create some other virtue in you. Yes. The, the tithe is not the end. Right. The tithe is a means to an end. Right. And yeah. part, of the, part of that is putting your trust in God. Right, yeah. If you go back to Malachi, what is the point of God saying, bring the tithe into the storehouse? It's because you have a limited amount of resources at your disposal, and, and, and the natural human tendency is to think, I've got to use all of those resources to take care of me and mine. Right. And what Malachi is saying, or what the Lord is saying through Malachi, is give back to God what rightfully belongs to God. And in so doing, learn to place your trust in Him. Right, yeah. Okay? But, and if you do place your trust in Him, then God says, I promise it's going to come back to you. Right. But you've got to be willing to trust. Right. Okay? And I mean, that's a main point of, of other minor prophets like Amos, who says, like, speaks for God and says... Um, I don't need your offerings. Right. I don't need your sacrifices. Yeah. You, you don't give the tithe because God needs the tithe. You give the tithe because we need to learn how to give. Yes. Right. And we need to learn how to trust and to be faithful to yeah. these things. Too. Is it so, Amos yeah. who set, has the line, I, I hate I your detest, solemn assemblies? Yeah, I detest your festivals. Yeah. And it's but like, like justice roll down like yeah. roll waters. And it, it's like it's like, but God, you made these festivals. And right. it's like yeah, but the point of these festivals <laughs> was right. not the festival. It yeah. wasn't because I needed your parties. Yeah. It was because the parties and the festivals were supposed to teach you something about how to live in the presence of God. Yeah. The, what does the Festival of Booths teach? Well, the Festival of Booths, you get together and you live in tents for a few days to remind you that you, your ancestors lived in tents all throughout the wilderness, and the Lord led them through right. and never deserted them. Yeah. It's, right? not, it's not like an ancient Coachella. It's yeah. not that, yeah. Yeah. That's actually a really good thing when we, when we think about the upcoming series of Advent and Christmas. Or yeah. if you were to think about the season of Lent and Easter, I mean, I mean, it's we're so tempted to 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 treat those as just these times when we get together and we drink wassail and we the kids mm-hmm. get to open presents and stuff. Right. But the festival of Christmas, the festival of Easter, is meant to remind us something about yes. who God is and who God is for us. Right. We can stop stop short too often with just the sentimentality of those. Yes. And I think that sentimentality is important because that's the familiarity that connects us to the true meaning, but we can't stop there. Right. We have to get there and then get past it too. And yeah. So, and honestly, I mean, we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, I'm sure, but that's one of the struggles as people who do preaching and practical ministry is how do we actually get beyond just the sentimentality and yeah. familiarity of these stories to the actual meaning. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So if you look at this passage, Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, one of the commentaries that I've read for this sermon this week connects that. It actually connects it not with Amos, but another one of the prophets who's particularly 
uh, interested in the same types of matters, and that is the prophet Micah. Okay. And the the connection there with uh, this passage from Matthew and Micah is one of the most beloved passages in all of the prophets, which is Micah 6, verses 6 through 8, where Micah says, What does the Lord require of you, man, but that you would do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God? Amen. And if you read what, what Jesus is saying here in Matthew, he's saying you should have, you should have tithed your, your garden herbs, but you should have done that without neglecting what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law. Right. It's not the technicalities. It's not the letter of the law. It's the moral meaning behind it. It's the spirit that inhabits the law. And that is what Jesus describes here as justice and mercy and faithfulness. I mean, I think a way to think of this is that God doesn't want your tithe as much as God just wants you. He does. God wants your heart. Yeah. Um, we'll be tying that this week with uh, a push just for uh, some service opportunities within the ministries of the church, just to say, hey, let's let's not just give our, our tithes and our offerings. Those are important, but let's not just give those because God is asking for more. God is asking for our hearts, that we would be fully bought into the ministries here uh, and fully devoted to, to building the kingdom of God in this place. Yes. So we'll be doing a bit of a a bit of a uh, service push for that too. So I hope um, you all are here for that. If you're a listener in, in our neck of the woods around Springdale, we hope that you come and attend uh, one of our worship services at 8.30, 9.45, or 11 o'clock. We are at First Church Springdale, which is at 206 West Johnson Avenue. Um, hope you come see us. If you're not in our area, be sure to go to a worshiping congregation in your neck of the woods. And for Pastor Andrew, for our producer Josh Bland, and for myself, Todd Lovell, We will catch you next time on Behind the Sermon.